Thanks for leading us this morning. Love singing with you guys. If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John this morning. We've been studying in Acts. We're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts about the early church. We're in chapter 15, and we'll be wrapping up that chapter, Lord willing, next week. But this week, in light of what we call Small Group Sunday, I wanted to bring a special message that would encourage our body about what it really means to be part of the body of Christ, in specific, a message on the fellowship of the church. And so in 1 John chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 7, and we're going to talk today about what is Christian fellowship. So 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 7, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to you, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin." Father, we bow our heads before you this morning and we're thankful to be able to sing these songs that have indeed stirred up our heart and and helped focus our attention on heaven and on the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're grateful this morning to study this, this, this theme of fellowship in 1 John and that we see throughout the Bible that we would have appropriate fellowship with the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that would lead us into an an intimate relationship with one another as part of the body of Christ. And so I pray this morning that you would encourage our hearts, that you would draw us in close, and that we would learn much and apply much in our journey of faith to grow closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, there are a number of faulty metaphors for the church Some people view the church as a gas station, you know, a place to fill up your spiritual tank, a place to wash your windshield and put air in your tires and check your oil. This would be seen as a place to recharge spiritually. Some view the church as a theater. This would be a place to go and watch others perform to enjoy watching them do their thing as they sing up on the stage and as the speaker or the preacher preaches his message that you just kind of want to come and sit down and relax and enjoy the show. Some people view the church as a drugstore, a place to receive prescriptions to ease your emotional pain, a place to receive bandages for your wounds, even a place to receive syrup for that cough. I mean, if you just go to church, you can fix almost anything, right? Still, others view church as a big box retail shop, you know, kind of like a Sam's or a Costco or a Walmart, 
one uh, true stop shop for all of your needs. The church has programs for the adults and for the college students and the youth ministry and the children's ministry. Different interest groups can have their social needs met all in one place. Now, someone else has compared the church to a tourist destination, a place to drop off and visit without any sense of commitment or permanency. They come for Christmas and they come for Easter. They come maybe for a special service here or there throughout the year, but you won't find them regularly, weekly, committed to the local church. I want to tell you this morning what a church is. A church is not a gas station. It's not a theater. It's not a retail store. And it's not a tourist destination. These are all, again, faulty metaphors of what the church really is. In the Bible has its own metaphors to teach us about the church. And these biblical metaphors give us a better and a divine description of what the church has been designed to be. For example, the church is described in God's word as a royal priesthood and as a holy nation. We are a new humanity with a new identity. We read that in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is also seen in scripture as a spiritual building. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. The church is also described in the Bible as a body composed of different parts, but carrying out a common mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13 portrays this picture. For just as the body is one and has many members, so also the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit." The church in the Bible is also used to be referred to as a bride. The church is a bride waiting for her groom. As we see in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. But perhaps, maybe the most common or most well-known analogy for the church is that of a family, where spiritual newborns are welcomed and encouraged to take on the milk and the meat of the word, where we have brothers and sisters in Christ, they have fathers in the faith, where at times Paul talks about to function as a father and even as a mother, we're to share our own lives with one another. And we see that no better than from the Lord Jesus himself, where in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, while Jesus was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man and told him, who is my mother? 
and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus made it clear that those who are in Christ and those who are walking in obedience are a part of his family. And as a local church, we represent the family of God as brothers and sisters in Christ. A church is a gathering of God's people who are committed to the preaching of the word, who are involved in worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and a gathering of God's people who are fellowshipping together. The church is both universal and local. Universally, it's made up of all true believers in Christ, and locally, it's made up of Christians who worship together in person with the same doctrinal convictions, usually the same conviction on a philosophy of ministry, and the desire to practice the one another's of Scripture. And this all points to the fellowship of the church. And in order to truly understand the fellowship of the church, you have to understand what I'm going to give you this morning, which is four truths about Jesus that clearly expressed in this passage will help us understand how we can fellowship better together. Again, this morning, I'm going to give you four truths about Jesus that will help you better understand the fellowship of the church. And if you have a bulletin there, you see it in your outline. We'll look at number one, Jesus is a real person who is divine. Number two, Jesus is the reason for our fellowship. Number three, Jesus is who we rejoice in. And then number four, Jesus is replacing darkness with light. So let's start off with number one this morning. Jesus is a real person who is divine. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, simply says, the word of life is eternal. The word of life is eternal. Now we're diving in, obviously, to 1 John. We haven't been spending time in this book, so I want to tell you a little bit about it. Look at verse 1. It says, that which is from the beginning. Let's just start right there. Uh, Here, in this very first verse, we understand that John, the apostle, wrote this epistle. And he writes 1 John, really, with a pastor's heart. And he's writing to his little children in the faith. And I would say that the major theme of 1 John is that of fellowship with God. And John wanted his readers to have an assurance of the indwelling presence of God through their abiding relationship with him. And belief in Christ should be manifested in the practice of righteousness and love for the brethren, which in return produces joy and confidence in the Lord. And so John wrote this epistle to encourage this kind of fellowship and wanted to emphasize the importance of holding fast to apostolic doctrine. First John was also written to refute the destructive teachings of the Gnostics by stressing the reality of the incarnation as well as the emptiness of professing Christ without obeying him. John holds out several important tests of a true profession of faith in Christ by providing the test for righteous living, for the love and fellowship of the brethren, and for the belief specifically that Jesus is the Christ, the incarnate God-man. So here in verse one, kind of introducing us into all of these things by simply saying that which is from the beginning. Well, John uses that phrase from the beginning eight times. Seven of those times, John is trying to establish the fact 
that either the person of Christ or the commandment of Christ or the message of Christ is not something new. It's been around from the beginning of time and it's been around since the beginning of Christ's first advent when he came to earth as is recorded in the Gospels. So when you read in the beginning, something points you to Genesis and then something points you to the beginning of Christ's life on earth. And what he's saying is what I'm writing to you in this epistle is not something divorced from all of time and it's not something different from what Jesus already established. I'm just connecting you that this message of fellowship with God and the, and the belief in the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ are teachings that have been known from the beginning. And so John is saying what I'm writing to you today, again, is nothing new or different because it started with Christ who is a real person. And John is referring to Jesus at the end of verse one. Look at the rest of verse one. He says, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And so he said, hey, I wanna tell you about Jesus. He is known as the word of life. He's been around from the beginning of time. He's been around from the beginning of the gospels. And I wanna tell you a little bit about who this person is. He's the word of life. And he does that throughout this epistle, and he also does that, as you well know, in the Gospel of John. In fact, most of you probably know, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've probably memorized John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word. He's connecting this thought in this epistle to what he's already established in his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then we read a little bit later in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us as we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so he's establishing already in John that Jesus is the word. He was from the beginning. And he will live forever and he, there's an eternality to who Christ is. He's the living word. And so the first thing that we're certain of here in verse 1 of 1 John is that Jesus, the word of life, is eternal. You got to just remember that. You are a moment. You are a vapor. You are like the dew of the grass. But the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. He's from, from forever to forever. And that's why we're reminded even Isaiah chapter 40, verse eight, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of God will stand forever. So we're learning a little bit about Christ. He's eternal. Not only is he eternal, the word of life is, but he's also the word of life. Your next blank says that he's evidential. Evidential, just simply meaning that there's some evidence of the word of life in the flesh. Look again at verse one, it says, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. These are all evidences of the, of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there were some false teachers saying that Jesus was not the Christ. And they had the question, how could Jesus be fully God and, and be fully man? And the Gnostic faith was kind of the idea that they had special knowledge about Jesus and, and that Jesus was really a demigod. And you had to have some type of special revelation of him. And they didn't really believe he was fully God, fully man. In fact, some of them even taught that Jesus was a ghost or he was just a vision 
or he certainly was not of real flesh and real blood because if you take that which is divine and put it in a physical body with flesh and blood, it would somehow defile the divinity. That was the way of their thinking. And so John has written, writing this to correct that thinking. And he says, no, 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 Jesus has been around from the beginning. He's eternal, but he's also a real person who lived in the flesh. And he appeals here to his senses of the fact that he had seen Jesus. He had heard Jesus. In fact, he had touched Jesus. Jesus was indeed and still is a person. And John had collected the evidence of the reality of Jesus with his senses. Again, verse one, he had heard him with his ears. Now think about it. John was there with Jesus all throughout his earthly ministry. He had heard every sermon Jesus had ever preached. He had heard all the parables. John had heard all the private words of communication and instruction and counsel that Jesus had even given to the 12. John was in the inner three. He would have heard special times in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the Mount of Transfiguration where John was there. And he's like, look, I've heard everything this man has ever said. I was right there at the foot of the cross when Jesus gave his last seven statements. John's like, I've heard him. I know who he is. I've heard everything that he's ever said. Not only is John heard him with his ears, but secondly, there in verse one, we see he's seen him with his eyes. As he's just kind of going through three of our main senses here. He's, he's heard him, he's seen him. John is trying to make it clear that he had actually seen Jesus, again, with his physical eyes. He's not referring to some type of spiritual vision when he was caught up into the third heaven. He's saying, no, 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 I saw him on earth. I, I, I saw him, and, and Jesus is not some mystical phantom image, as some allege, but he's a real man whom John had observed daily for over three years by his normal eyesight. And not only this, but verse one says that only had he seen him, but he had looked upon him. That phrase, looked upon him, means more than just a mere glance or a quick look. It could also be translated that he behold, he was beheld by John. He, he had a long searching gaze beholding the Lord. He, he saw him and he studied him and he meditated on what it was that he saw. That, not just Jesus' body, but the real things that he did. Even when he, when he ate uh, food after the resurrection and saw Jesus uh, partaking of a meal there in the Sea of Galilee, he knew Jesus was a real person. And not only that, not only had he heard him or he seen him, but he'd also touched him. He had touched him, the end of verse one, with his hands. The word touched here could also be translated to feel. He actually had tactile feeling of the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus had used that same word in Luke 24, 39, after the resurrection. You remember when he said, see my hands and my feet, it is I myself. And Jesus then said, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And the apostles would have touched Jesus all the time during the daily course of their companionship with him. And John even had described himself earlier as the one who had leaned back on Jesus's chest. He had a close, intimate uh, relationship with the Lord Jesus. And the Lord had also encouraged doubting Thomas, as surely you remember, to put your hand in, in your finger and take it and put it in my hand and in my side. And so we can be certain that Jesus is eternal. We can be certain that Jesus gave clear evidence of his own body in the flesh, it's unsurmountable evidence. And then third, we can certainly believe about the word of life here in verse two, that the word of life is experiential. 
experiential. Look at verse two now, the life, talking about the word of life, the Lord Jesus, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, that which is from the Father and was made manifest to us. He's simply saying here in verse two, you can experience the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have an experience in the form of a relationship with the word of life even this very day. John experienced Jesus And now he is proclaiming that this manifestation can be made to you today by faith. In fact, in verse 2, he uses that word manifest twice. And he's making an emphasis here that Jesus must be revealed to you. He needs to be revealed to you. I know that now at the time he's writing 1 John, Jesus had already died. He'd already been resurrected. He'd already spent 40 days after the resurrection. He had ascended to the Father. The scripture tells us that he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us at this very moment. And so as time began to pass, people began to teach things like, well, Jesus must not have been real. And you can't really know him today. He's already come and gone. And, and, and John's saying, no, no, you can still know him. He can reveal himself to you this very day. He can manifest himself to you. It means to reveal or to make known. It can also be translated, that word manifest, to cause to become visible. Both times it is used in the passive tense that Jesus would manifest himself to you in the passive tense, which means you can't actually see him unless he reveals himself to you. You you may think that you know who he is, but you don't really know who he is unless divine grace opens up your eyes to the truths of Scripture so that you can see and hear what it is John's proclaiming and then see Christ for who he really is. And so John is saying that Jesus was revealed to us and because we have seen him and know him, we want to share our testimony with you. John is proclaiming here in verse 2 that the eternal life that is Christ can be had only in a relationship with him. But you gotta, you got to see him. He has to manifest himself to you. And you may say, again, like some of the people here that he's making this argument to, you may say, well, I don't know whether or not Jesus is true or not. I mean, I've, I've never seen him. I've never seen him in the flesh. I, I don't know what he's really like. How do you know if the word of life, uh, what, how would you even know if he did reveal himself to you? Well, the word of life has revealed himself to us, even today, I would say in three main ways. This is not in your notes, but I think you can follow the logic here pretty clearly. He's revealed himself to you even today in three main ways. You ready? He's revealed himself to you through creation. He's revealed himself to you through your conscience. And he's revealed himself to you through the cross. Okay, it's not in your notes, but you can write those three C's down if you want. Through creation, through your conscience, and through the cross. And we see that probably most clearly in Romans. So turn over to Romans chapter 1 with me, if you will. And let's start with creation. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This is how, again, Jesus has manifest himself to you today. If you're struggling a little bit, so I don't know if Jesus really existed. How do you know he was in a spirit? Well, these three things certainly can help us. And they're proclaimed in Romans 1, starting verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So Romans 1, 18 through 20 is showing us that through creation, we know that there's a God. God has revealed himself to us through creation. And we understand from Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the agent of creation. So from creation itself, we know there's a God and that God desires to communicate, reveal himself to us. And he does so specifically in our conscience. When it says there in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's partly talking here about the fact of the imago Dei, the fact that each and every one of us have the image of God written in our created bodies. And that also means that we have a soul, not only an outer man, but we have an inner man which desires to communicate and commune with Almighty God. Now for some who are depraved, who have never turned from their sin, they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. But for those who've been called out of darkness into light, they have seen God through creation through their conscience. And then if you go back to the first part of Romans 1, it's all obviously through Christ, through Christ. Look back up at Romans 1, verses 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we're reading in verses one through four about the cross, about Jesus came, he's fully God, fully man, he's the son of David, he came and he died on a cross and he was resurrected, verse four, from the dead, this is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Jesus is, back to 1 John, he's just again arguing here that Jesus is a real person. He is divine. He appeared to John in the flesh and John is compelled to tell us about the eternality of Jesus, about the fact that you can see the evidence of Christ's life by the testimony of John who saw him, heard him and touched him and you can have an experience with Jesus this very day who has revealed himself to us through creation, through our conscience and through the cross. And so now that we've seen that Jesus is a real person who is divine, let's look at our second truth about Jesus that will help us understand the fellowship of the church. And that's simply this, number two, Jesus is the reason for our fellowship. He is the reason for our fellowship. Look at verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to our next blank, let's just talk a little bit about this word fellowship. I mean, I don't know about you, but growing up in church, as I did in the South, we talked a lot about fellowship. Good old Southern churches like to have fellowship. And it was typically mentioned as something of like kind of an event. Like, hey guys, tonight after church, we're going to have fellowship over at the Johnson's house. We're going to have ice cream and cake. You guys are welcome to come by. I mean, we even had a building on our campus called the Fellowship Hall. Anybody have one of those growing up? Hey, ain't nothing wrong with it. I'm not knocking it, but I'm just saying we had the fellowship hall. We had a building. We had events. It was all about fellowship. And while that's a good thing, we have to be careful that sometimes we're not just confusing the fact that because you have an ice cream with others in the college group or the youth group that somehow you've accomplished fellowship. You're not quite there yet. 
I mean, you're heading in the right direction. Let's have some ice cream together. You know what I'm saying? Or a good cup of coffee. You know what I'm saying there? All right, but the idea is, and in order to have true fellowship, that's just the beginning. Just getting together is not fellowship. And so you got to understand whether we're hanging out as a church, are we really fellowshipping correctly? Sometimes we might even announce, hey, you know, in our summer fest, hang out with us after the service. We're going to have some food, some fun, and some fellowship. All right, those three F's go together nicely. So we're asking, what is the question? Uh, I mean, what is fellowship really? What, what is this word that we're talking about? Well, Webster's Dictionary in today's language would describe fellowship as a community of interest, activity, feeling, or experience, or as a verb, fellowship is to join in fellowship, especially as a church member, or to admit to fellowship as in a church. Well, Webster's a nice dictionary, and that's, again, a step in the right direction, but we're still not there yet, right? We, we ain't there yet. Y'all, come on. Come on, let's get all the way there. And what we're reading about fellowship in the Bible, which is what we really care about right here in the original language of the Greek word, you probably know that the Greek word for fellowship is the word koinonia. There you go, koinonia. It's one of the common Greek words that you need to get to know along with agape and a few other words. It's not that hard. It's koinonia. It's the fact that we want to have fellowship together in the biblical definition of that word koinonia simply means to have something in common. And the term koinonia signifies a mutual participation in a common cause or shared life. In fact, koinonia could be translated as participation or partnership. And the word is used 19 times in the New Testament, four times here in 1 John. We've just read all four of them here in these first seven verses. And in the context of the New Testament and the epistle of 1 John, we are obviously talking about Christian fellowship. And before you can enter into Christian fellowship, you have to enter into Christ and he has to enter into you. And embracing Jesus Christ is a prerequisite to entering into Christian fellowship and thus being part of a true Christian community. And so if the base definition is to share something in common, what is that something? And I'm saying to you in the Christian community, that something is a someone and his name is Jesus Christ. So therefore, my definition for fellowship is sharing Christ together. That's what we're doing. We are sharing that which is in common with true believers in Christ. We're sharing Christ. We're sharing his word. We're sharing the indwelt Holy Spirit inside of us together as a church. We are coming together to fellowship, and fellowship in the Bible is more than being part of a common community. It's being a part of Christ's community. Now, one commentator said it this way, quote, the Christian community is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a cause, nor is it an academy where an intellectual consensus about God is discovered. It cannot be so superficial. Christian community is partnership in experience. It is the common living of people who have a shared experience of Jesus Christ. And they talk about this experience. They urge each other to grow more deeply in it. And they discover that through it, they began to build life together unlike any shared life 
in the world. That's what fellowship is. It's sharing Christ together. We talk about it. We have something more special, more in common than any other fan of your favorite ball team, than any other style of school choice, than any other particulars about your diet or your workout or what you drive. We have a fellowship together in Christ, which I really enjoy because that means I can be really good friends with nerdy people, (laughs) with really smart people, with athletic people, with people who like to dance, people who do piano, people who don't look like me, talk like me, understand the world like I do. But if they're in Christ, I mean, we should understand the world a little bit together, right, with a common Christian worldview. But you know what I'm saying. It's the idea if they're in Christ, I can now just be like, you know, I can relate to you. I can talk with you. I can serve you. I can be edified by you. I can enjoy relationship with you because we have Christ in common. And my goodness, when you're looking for friends, you know, I got, I got five kids. I love our kids. They're good kids. And sometimes our kids are like, you know, like, hey, I don't know if I really like this person. I'm looking for, for someone who's more like me. And I'm like, well, is this person a Christian? Are you a Christian? They're a Christian. You're a Christian. That's friendship right there. Those are the kind of people I want you to develop friendship with, right? I mean, that's the same for us as adults. I mean, you you get it. You you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes you're more close to certain people than others. But the idea is if they're in Christ, you need to start thinking about this a different way. Oh, they're in Christ. I'm in Christ. We can have an incredible friendship. We can have awesome fellowship. We want to build life on that. And so as we look at this concept of fellowship, let me give you three truths here under this second heading, if I can, about how it all starts with Christ so that you can understand how to better fellowship uh, biblically, if you will. A, true fellowship always emanates with Christ. It always emanates. It just means it begins with Christ. It must start with Christ. It begins with him and it flows out of him. And you must believe everything that was already proclaimed in verses one and two to know the Christ of the Bible. And so verse three is saying, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And so maybe even for this first blank emanates, look at the bottom of verse three, it's gotta start with Jesus, right? It's, it's with his son, Jesus Christ. Christ, which also means that if you, if you don't know Christ, you can't have real fellowship in the church, right? You, you can be friends to some degree with those of the world who don't know Christ, but you can't really share in what we're talking about this morning in true Christian fellowship with them. You, you can't have fellowship with those who reject Christ. I mean, you remember 2 Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And it's just a reminder, like I shouldn't be joined at the hip with people from work or school or on my ball team who don't know Christ. Now again, you could still be friends to a degree, I'm just stressing you can't have true Christian fellowship. And there's always gotta be the reminder. I know you're trying to build a friendship to evangelize them, 100% behind all of that. You know, but I'm just saying be careful because you don't really share the same stuff in common. And that's why there's that warning of 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked. Which means, young lady, please don't date that baller on the team 
who looks good and smells good, but he don't know Jesus. I'd rather you go out with the nerd any day, come on, uh, who loves Christ, because that's more, and you have more in common with that person than you do with the person who doesn't know Jesus. Don't be unequally yoked and then just remember why. Well, why not? He looks so good. He smells so good. He's so cool. Why not? Because what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? It means you don't even share the same stuff together. What in the world does light have to do with darkness? The text goes on. What does Christ have to do with Belial? What does the temple of God have to do with the temple of idols? What in the world are you doing? Pursue other Christians for this kind of fellowship that would be beautiful and truly intimate and glorifying Christ together. Jesus did not have true fellowship with people of other faiths. You know how he interacted with people of other faiths, namely Judaism, the Pharisees? Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews in John 8, 19, he said to them, where is your father? Jesus said, you, neither, uh, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And later he says, you're of your father, who? The devil. How do you think that went with Jesus' fellowship with the Pharisees? Not so well. Right? And guess what? He wasn't trying to. He wasn't trying to be buddy-buddy with the Pharisees. He's calling them out and say, hey, we're not on the same page. We have a different father. We have a different life. My goal is to confront you in love and with a firm calling out of darkness into light. And I think we should take a page from Jesus' book. We should understand who he fellowship with and follow in a similar manner. If anyone denies that Jesus is the Christ or tries to reinvent Christ into an image of their own making, which is what people do today, right? They're like, well, I think Jesus was. Well, I think Jesus would. Well, I think Jesus is. And they start to just give what they think Jesus is. Hold on a second. The Bible's already told us all we need to know about Christ. Everything we need to know about how Christ relates to the Father, to other people, to the world, is all written in Scripture, and that's what 1 John 2, is reminding us of. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So someone's saying, well, I think Jesus would accept everybody, whether they repent or not, of their particular sin. Well, they just redefine Christ. And at that moment, they're no longer claiming the Christ of the Bible. They're making up a Christ of their own making. That's meaning that they're a liar. And according to 1 John 2, they are the Antichrist, one of many, small a, Antichrist who deny the Father and the Son. And Jesus does desire intimate fellowship, though, with us. He desires intimate fellowship with us. We are his bride. He, he desires to be close with us, and Jesus won't settle for second best. He wants to be the most important relationship in your life. So true Christian fellowship, it's got to start with Christ. It starts with him. This is why Jesus says to the church of Laodicea that was a little bit lukewarm, maybe they're on the middle, and, and, and one foot in the world and one foot in the church. He says to that church, as you remember, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And in that context, he's just reminding the Laodiceans, and we can learn from that truth that he said to them even today, that, hey, I'm right here. I am right here. 
and I am knocking, in a sense, at the door. And if you open the door, this is, a, this is really a picture of fellowship. Revelation 3.20 is a picture of, if you open this door, I will come into your house, and I will sit at the table with you. And we will dine together, and we will have intimate fellowship. And then he's saying, and when we're done with that, you're coming over to my house, because I'm going to eat with you, and then you're going to eat with me. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty much ready to go to his house that he's preparing for us. John 14, a place where he's going to come back for his own and take us to his house because he desires that intimate supping with, eating with, fellowshipping with together. That's what Christ desires. Can you imagine how beautiful the fellowship is that we can have with the Lord Jesus Christ even today in this moment? So true Christian fellowship must start with Jesus. Secondly, true Christian fellowship always extends to the Father, right there in the middle of verse three. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. So if you have fellowship with Jesus, the Son, then you have automatic fellowship with the Father. And look, the only way to know God is through Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know the Father. And we are invited to have fellowship with the Father through the Son. Think with me for just a minute, if you will, about the Father. We're talking a little bit about fellowshipping with him. In fact, just close your eyes for a second. I know this is going to get a little weird for you, but just close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to think about the Father. Think about the attributes of God. So close your eyes just for a moment. Go ahead and think about God's omniscience. Think about the fact that, that he knows everything there is to know. Everything that could ever be known, he knows it, and that's, that's the Father. And think about, just for a moment, think about his omnipotence, that he has all power to overcome any foe and any enemy. Fathom with me just for a minute his omnipresence, that somehow the Father could be everywhere at once, that he's always with you in the height of the heights and the lows of the lows. Consider for a moment his transcendence. Try to understand his holiness. There is no darkness in him at all. That there is no one holy like the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Make an effort just for a moment to comprehend his eternality. That he's always, always been, always is, and always will be. All right, now you can open your eyes. Isn't it fun just to meditate for just a moment on his attributes? Did you know that that Father, the Father, God, desires fellowship with you? He who is omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, all holy, he desires a personal, intimate relationship with you. He's not beyond you, he's not unapproachable. Through Christ, Jesus reminds us that we can have fellowship with him in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Not only is Jesus desiring to have that kind of fellowship with you, the father comes along with the son and fellowship with the father, by the way, is always by his initiative. He's initiating that kind of fellowship with you. No one can come unto me, John 6, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Fellowship with the Father is by his love. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Fellowship with the Father is always by his grace. For by grace have you been saved through faith and it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The Father desires fellowship with you. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. And so a third truth about Christian fellowship now is what we're talking about. See, true fellowship always exists between believers. Starts with Christ, connected with the Father, and through the Father and the Son, we see how it exists at the first part of verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, again, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, one, one of the main reasons we have such an emphasis on our small group ministry here at our church is that we want the members of this church to be involved in real relationships that go beyond the highs and the buys of a Sunday morning. We, we want to help foster relationships with one another that really encourage one another to get to know one another in meaningful ways. And as Christians, we should be striving to get together for that kind of sharing Christ together experience on a regular basis. As I was studying for this message, I read a couple articles on small groups this week of various church websites. And one article mentioned, and I thought it was interesting, said something to the effect that most people come to a particular church, about 80% come to hear the preaching of the word possibly the worship, kind of whatever's going up on the stage. That's why they come. And then it said 70% of the people stay because they enjoyed the fellowship. They enjoyed being together with other people, creating community and relationships to enjoy Christ together. And this is what we see really practice even from the early church, as you probably remember from Acts 2.42 on the day of Pentecost, as people are being saved and baptized, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's just a reminder that while Peter gave a humdinger of a sermon at Pentecost, people lingered after the sermon. And they just said, hey, we want to hang out together. We want to talk together. We want to pray together. And we want to eat together. We want to be together. The, the early church wasn't just built on good preaching. It was built on incredible fellowship, the sharing all things in common together. And some people still tell me things like, well, I'm just here for the word. I'm here because you're an expositor. And as long as you're preaching from the good book, I'll be here. I don't care what happens about worship. And I don't care about small groups. I'm here for the word. I would say to you, if that's you today, I would say to you, grow up. Grow up. The Christian faith is far more than the preaching of the word. And we, you, know, you know how much we love the word, right? But the Christian faith is the word plus the fellowship of the saints coming together on a regular basis to share all that Christ has revealed to us together. We're, we're to be practicing all the one another's of the New Testament to love one another and to honor one another, and to live in harmony with one another, and to serve one another, and to instruct one another, and admonish one another, and forgive each other, and encourage one another, and build one another up. And it's hard to do that during this hour, because I'm the only one talking right now. You're all looking at the back of the head in front of you, or at me, which means you're not fellowshipping right now. So when I'm done, you better get after it, because right? the idea here is that church is more 
than just the preaching. It is the worship through song, the worship through giving, the worship through serving, the worship through fellowship together. And when we fellowship, again, be reminded, it's more than just eating guacamole together, all right? It's more than that. We're sharing Christ together, and we are doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to fellowship with each other by reminding each other of Christ's sacrifice for us. I appreciate what John Stott said, his commentary on this particular passage. He says this, quote, fellowship is a specifically Christian word and denotes that common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ and the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of all believers. It is our common possession of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes us one. So again, just saying everything we've already heard, it's, it's about the true fellowship. It must start with Christ. That fellowship exists and is extended to the Father and then are we having the kind of fellowship that is pursuing one another in this way? So Jesus is a real person who is divine. Jesus is the reason for our fellowship. The third truth about Jesus that will help us understand this even better. Number three, and I'll go through this one quickly. Jesus is who we rejoice in. Look at verse four. Verse four, he's who we rejoice in. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So your next blank there, joy comes from the Christ-centered fellowship. That's what joy, that's part of what he's saying in verse four. In fact, he's saying, hey, look, I wanna tell you all about Christ, about the fact that I've seen him, I've heard him, and I've touched him. And I wanna tell you that you can have a relationship with him and a relationship with the Father. And that's how you fellowship together. And then he says, and I'm telling you all this because that brings great joy. It brings great joy not only to see and understand the gospel, but to see and understand our dependence on one another, our interrelationships with one another, and joy and fellowship are connected all throughout the scripture. In fact, here's five quick ways how joy and fellowship are connected. The first one there uh, that, that I'm reading to you out of verse four, then look at joy comes from Christ-centered fellowship. Uh, Philippians 1, I always thank my God in prayer for you making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is the word, again, koinonia. And he's saying, I've got great joy because of our fellowship, our partnership together. B, joy comes from humility. Here we talk about the fellowship of John the Baptist with the Lord Jesus when he talks about how he's the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice for this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He's saying, John the Baptist is modeling in that passage, humility. Hey, Jesus is the, he's the, he's the groom. I'm the bridegroom and I'm, I'm kind of like also his, his best man in the wedding helping him do what it is that he's supposed to be doing. And joy, John the Baptist is saying, he gets great joy from being humble, preferring others and considering, considering their interests is more important than his own. Joy also comes, thirdly, joy comes from the unity of the body. There in John 17, that's Christ's high priestly prayer. And it talks about how that we would all be one so that his joy would be fulfilled. So there's joy in our unity. D, joy comes from face-to-face -face interaction. All right, you actually got to turn to this one. This is kind of funny. All right, you right. Second John, second John. So you're in first John. So it's just one book over. Second John chapter, uh, uh, well, there's only one chapter, right? So go to verse 12. <laughs> verse 12, check this out. Here's what he says. Though I have much to write to you, 
I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. You know what he's saying? Pen and paper don't do it. You know what he's saying? Texting doesn't do it. You know what he's saying? Instagram ain't going to cut it. Uh-uh. No, he didn't just go down on the gram. Yeah, he did. Look, you got to put down your phone. You got to put down your pen and paper. You got to go face to face. You got to get together with one another in order to have meaningful fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean we can't use those other tools of communication. They certainly can be helpful. But I just love the fact he's like, hey, pen and paper ain't cutting it. We got to meet face to face. And that's what brought him incredible joy. And then fifth, joy comes from the blessing of a godly family. I have no greater joy. Third John says, verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What a joy and delight it is when parents are able to have that kind of fellowship with their own kids. It's got to be God's sovereign grace, saving your kids. Your goal is to be faithful. God is the one who brings the fruit. But when you are able to fellowship in that way, there's no greater joy, he's saying there, to have that kind of fellowship and experience together between a parent and their child. Let's look at a fourth truth about Jesus that will aid us in our fellowship. Number four, Jesus is replacing darkness with light. Again, verse five, we know that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He's simply saying, and all I wanted to say between verses five, six, and seven is sin hinders your fellowship. So we got to understand that God is light. Verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse five is introducing this chasm between light and darkness and the message of Christ and the message of the false teachers. And you have a decision to make to either follow Christ and the light of the world and whoever follows him will not be in darkness but will have the light of life. And then B, we are walking we were walking in the darkness, verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know what he's saying? When you're living a hypocritical life, you're hiding secret sin and there's darkness in your soul, in your practice, in your behavior, in your heart, it rips genuine fellowship away from what it's intended to be. And he's saying, hey, for those of you who don't start with Christ, include the Father, the Holy Spirit, and one another, and that's because you're walking in darkness, there's some sin who has infiltrated your life, and if you say that you do have fellowship with Christ, but you're walking in the darkness, then you're a liar. That's what he's saying, verse six, you are lying, and you are not practicing the truth. And he talks a lot about that. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. If you hate your brother, then you can't have fellowship with your brother because you hate them. You're at enmity with them. You're fighting and devouring one another. And when you're doing that, it is ruining the fellowship that God has called you to. And that's who we were. If you're in Christ today, that can't describe your ongoing character as a Christian. And then it leads us to verse 7, kind of coming full circle, if you will. Your last blank, we now have fellowship in the light. So we got to move through that darkness through confession, repentance, uh, being saved, being sanctified, being washed, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, here it is, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So this morning we're talking about the fellowship of the church. 
And by that, I'm talking about those who are in Christ and Christ is in you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, then we want to invite you into a personal relationship with him. And if you're here and you do know Christ, I want you to look at the take-home um, application to this because this is what we're talking about small group Sunday. Small groups are a way for us to practice Christ-centered fellowship. Just a way. I'm not going to guilt you out here and say if you are not a part of a small group, then you are not ever practicing in Christian fellowship because I don't believe that. But you know what I do believe? Small groups are a way to practice these fellowship principles that we've been studying so that we can connect with the body in a way that's meaningful and sharing Christ together in small groups through breaking of bread, spending time in prayer, discussing God's word, doing activities together is typically what's going on in each and every one of our fellowships. And we want to invite you to be a part of that so that you can practice that kind of Christ-centered fellowship. Number two, small groups are a way for us to serve each other by practicing all the one another's. We have an opportunity in small group to sharpen one another, admonish one another, instruct one another, encourage one another, serve one another. We had a, a, a person moving yesterday and there were some people who showed up just to help, help this dear lady. You guys know Bernie from our church. Bernie was moving yesterday. She wanted to say thanks to everybody who helped her move yesterday because there was old people, young people, all kind of people over there yesterday helping her out, get moved. And that's what being a part of a fellowship means, that we serve each other. So in our small groups, we try to help people with moving, with, with when they have children, when they have surgery, when they have family needs, that we're there together to help show up in meaningful ways. And then third, small groups are a way for you to stay in the light and not drift back into the darkness. You guys remember COVID-19? <laughs> Some dark days, right? I mean, we're still on the tail end of that. I get that. It's still a difficult thing. You know why one of the main reasons we got back together was after, you know, the state said, you can't meet, you can't sing, you got you to gotta do this, you got to do that. And we kind of followed it for a little while. You know why we quit? Because we couldn't fellowship. We were like, we're hungry, not only for the word, but to be together in person. And I want to see your face. Pull that mask down. Come on. All right. So, you know, the idea is that we wanted to fellowship together. So we got to the point where we honestly said as an elder team, we are not capable to fulfill God-given directives if we're going to social distance ourselves to death. And at some point, you know, we made the transition. And I'm just saying it's that vital to the life of a church to be together and what we found was when we went that time without small groups, we had a few people drift. We came out of COVID with a church discipline situation. It can happen. People start to drift when they're not together, we're not able to check in as easily, and to start to, to really help one another walk through the Christian faith together. And so we believe small groups are an excellent way for us to provide and be involved in discipleship together so that we stay walking in the light and we don't drift back into darkness. Well, after I pray, we're going to sing a final song, and then I'm encouraging you, if you're part of our church this morning, if you're already a member, if you're thinking about becoming a member, or if you're just going to be here for a little while, we want you to attend one of our small groups. We place a great emphasis on our small group ministry. We have Sunday morning, we have our small group ministry, and we encourage people to plug in and serve somewhere in our church. And so outside on the patio, we have about eight different small groups available with different leaders 
who are covering different material. Some are doing sermon-based discussions. Some are doing a book of the Bible. Some are studying through just a Christian book of theology or biblical counseling or some type of application. And we would love for you to jump in and be a part. Uh, I also want to let you know we have a senior study that will be represented out there. We have the college Bible study that we're talking about that's going to be on Thursday nights. That table is going to be set up out there. You can't do it all and uh, some groups are going to be big. Some have to limit their space because of the size and scope of what they're uh, working through. So we have different options, but it might not, you know, if you, if you can't work with one, then go to the other because we just got to do it in a way that makes sense for, for our leaders and for what we're going through. And we just want you to be involved. So I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to sing as we close. Fellowship in here. Fellowship out there. Go up to one of the tables, get to know about uh, the small groups and which one you might want to jump in for this year so that we can have a true church of great Christ-centered fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word here in 1 John and to hear great, great uh, theological reminders from the apostle about the divinity of Christ, that he saw Jesus and he heard Jesus and he touched Jesus. And that reality is that in Christ we can be made new. And as new people, we want to link arms together with one another. And we want to dine with Christ. And we love the intimacy we can have with our Father, Abba Father. And we also want to have that kind of Christian fellowship emphasis of sharing Christ together. Help us to do that with our conversation. Help us to do that with our activities. Help us to do that in a way that would bring strength to one another and glorify you. And we're so thankful for a church like this who loves one another and who's growing to do that better as we excel still more in practicing those one another's in the power of the Spirit because of our love for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.